let's get into the word now. Because we are going to break bread today. Uh, Turn to Leviticus chapter 23. And the reason we're going to be able to cover the whole chapter um, is we're going to basically work this chapter through an outline. So it's important now that you bring something out to write with. Remember, we're, we're Bereans people. We, we are a people who study the Word of God. You don't t- hear too many topical sermons unless it's a visitor. And there's nothing wrong with topical. Um, please don't, don't take me wrong. Take me wrong. Um, I love I love a topical sermon, but when I listen to a topical sermon, uh, after it's all done, I feel like somebody handed me dessert without the meal. Does that make sense? And so what we do here is we give you the meal, and then God will give you the dessert. Yeah. So um, we're, we are students, and and even the Bereans were called people of noble character, and the reason they were called a people of noble characters because they actually would go and check out everything Paul taught on. They would go home and check out the scriptures. And, uh, and we have always said that. You just don't believe everything you hear from a pulpit, including from me. You need to be a Berean that goes home and go, yeah, Harry was right on today. He's, you know, he's, the points are right there. He's not out of context. And if I am going off context, it will be a word of exhortation. I'll tell you that I am. We're not to manipulate the Word of God. We're to teach it just the way it, it, it's laid out for us. Amen, guys? And um, so anyway, I say all that because we're going to be working off of an outline. So you ready? Let me give you just eight quick points on this chapter. Uh, point one is we're going to be talking about the Sabbath. Later on, I'm going to give you the personal application of each point. But for right now, just write down Sabbath. Uh, verses 4 through 8, there's two things I want you to write down. Passover and unleavened bread. Now, these are different feasts, by the way, festivals. Three of them are mandatory. The rest were not mandatory. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. So four through eight, we have Passover and unleavened. And the reason they are grouped together is because Passover actually kickstarts. It's a one-day thing, and it kickstarts a seven-day of unleavened bread, the festival of unleavened bread. Then we go into verses 9 through 14, number Four, so number two is Passover, number three is unleavened. Number four is nine through 14, and that's the Feast of First Fruits. Your translation, if you have little headlines, it would be the first ingathering or something like that. Um, Verses 22, or pardon me, 15 through 22, number five, the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost. Now, verses 24... Uh, through 25 is the Feast of Trumpets. Now, your translations might kind of show something a little different, a verse off, you know, and that's okay because of the translation or the paraphrases. That's why it might be a verse off or, you know. But it's, um, but 24 through 25 is the Feast of Trumpets. And then uh, 26 through 32 is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, 33 through 44, number 8, is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now remember, just so you, you know, you catch this as we go along, each one of these will have a personal application for you and I. It might be even mentioned at the end when we're getting closer to take communion together. Um, but I just want to throw that as a reminder. Now, to, to kind of a way of an introduction to kind of maybe stimulate our hearts and our minds, um, I want to ask you a question. Um, What was your testimony like? In other words, we all have a story. We all have a story. Um, Some of us have come to the Lord through hardships. You know, you've been one of those that you've just, you've had to endure a lot. And you came to the end. You just couldn't go any further. Someone witnessed to you, or maybe you picked up a Bible, but for some reason... You knew you had to cry out to the Lord. He touched your life. He gave you hope. And you knew you were saved without the shadow of a doubt. Some of us might have come to the Lord because we just feel like, well, there was just something missing in our lives. There's just a a hole in the heart. And there's just a big gap. And you just don't know how 
to fill that. And so, again, a Bible study, um, a, a track, um, something, somehow God, through his Holy Spirit, came and showed you the only one that can fill that void is a relationship with Christ, and therefore you got saved. My, I can't, my story was I just, I, I just wanted a dad. I know it sounds kind of quirky, but, you know, I just wanted a father figure in my life. Now, we had dad, but he really wasn't a dad. Does that make sense? He wasn't really a, a father. And a lot of us have that kind of story. But for some reason, I guess I was just sensitive. Knowing that I didn't have that, I really longed for it in the worst way. I, I try, in the neighborhood, I tried to make everybody else's dad mine. It just never worked. You know, I would look at an aunt or an uncle and say, I wish you were my parents and um, very abusive situation. And so uh, I remember Denny coming to me and he had the same sense in his heart. In fact, my brother ran from my dad, um, went into the army and went right into Vietnam. And I asked him when he was dying, why did you go to Nam? He goes to get away from dad. So um, when Denny got saved, my older brother, um, he the first thing he said to me was, God can be our dad. And I thought, yeah, right, bro. God can be your dad, you know. And uh, I was having a hard time with the Jesus freaks in town anyway. So here, now my brother comes home. He's one. And so, but I kept pondering that thought that could it be that this God. And the more Denny witnessed to me about salvation and Jesus and, and taking my sin, it's just loving, a loving father. I said, you know, I want that. In September 1973, I cried out and said, if you can be my dad. And he took me up on that. I was my, he's been my dad ever since. So every one of us has a story, all of us. And they're all right. But here's what I, I, I find to be mostly true. The majority of people who come to the Lord, what follows that initial salvation is a sense of joy. I had so much joy and I couldn't stop smiling. People were, th were thinking I was stoned. I smiled f even in my sleep for a week. I, my jaws hurt. I just couldn't wipe this goofy smile off my face. And it was a light that just, and people knew that my life had changed. There was so much joy, but maybe you can attest to this or maybe agree to, to a degree. Uh, that joy was attacked right away within a few years i totally lost it you know i went from this very joyful happy person with his heavenly father to this sour almost bitter um seminarian graduate eeyore christian and it was totally gone and uh and it was affecting people around me, even my dear wife. And I, and, I, I, and I equate that to that the enemy is a thief. He does come to seek and destroy. And one of the things he comes to seek and destroy is our joy. And we know so much about it. The Bible talks about a joy and it's unspeakable. You can't describe this goofy joy. <laughs> and why is this guy happy? Why not happy? Happiness is predicated upon a circumstance. So, so erase that. Joy is based on Jesus. It's a joy that's deep down inside that when you're going through some of the darkest times, that somehow deep down in your heart you still know He's there. He's still your Father. And He can give you a joy, the unspeakable joy. And because He does that, it's full of His glory. See, that's why you can glorify God in the midst of your trials. So when God penned out these festivals, there's eight of them here in this chapter, every one of them there's to be this, this demonstration of joy afterwards. Now there's one that starts off very somber, very stoic almost, where they're watching their sins being transferred through a priest's hands onto, a, a, this, uh, onto an animal to carry their sin. Now that's not joyous, but once the news got back that their joy was their sin was taken away, well then they would go into festive mentality mode. And they would start dancing and banging the tambourines and playing the flutes and horns and all. So for most part, when God gave them these celebrations, he wanted them to display joy. 
Years ago, I was uh, in Israel. It was quite late at night, couldn't sleep. The whole jet lag thing was happening. So I, I went out of the hotel and I started headed down to a street I was familiar with, Ben Lahuda Street. And towards the end of that area, there's an open, an open area. I heard music. And, and I think it's somewhere, I know it's early morning, one, two in the morning. So I get down there and I see these Orthodox, Hasidic Jews, man, you know. These are the guys with the little curly things and the hats and all. And they got this, this circle going and they're dancing. You know, to Hebrew, Hebrew music. I can't understand it. And then there's another circle outside of that. They're going in the other direction. And I stood on the hill and I, you know what I saw? To, 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 make, to just, to, to kind of maybe share my, I saw joy. I saw a bunch of men and women. The women were on the outskirts. They're, the men are dancing by themselves. And the women are, and they're making this kind of an odd sound that I could ne- never try to, get. Share with you, and then they're throwing candy down on the street, and the whole thing is so festive that I wanted to put one of those things on, and go down with them, and dance with them. I don't even know what you're saying, but I want to be your people. You know, I want to dance like that. I want to sing like that, because whatever you're singing and dancing about, you believe it. And you look at Christianity today. As my buddy Barry McGuire said to me, um, man, most Christians today are in the basement digging a ditch rather than building a ladder to get to heaven, heavenly places. And something God has just been laying on my heart, you know. You know, there's a lot of things that can be contagious. And did you know joy can be contagious? Here's a Harryism for you. Do you know that Eorism is also contagious? If you're walking around like you're all bummed out all the time and there's a fire burning in my soul, I can't control. Dude, you know, not only are you digging a hole in the basement, you're burying me in it. Or you can just close your eyes and think in your heart. All that's been accomplished that we don't even have to fight anymore. We fight from victory. It's done. It's sin's been defeated. That we're a son and a daughter to God, our Heavenly Father. If that doesn't make you happy, what would? You know what people try to replace it with because it doesn't? the law yeah what makes them happy is trying to put a twist on God's promises and they'll lay a trip on you like Sabbath like the feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread the feast of Pentecost the feast of trumpets the feast of all these day of atonements stuff that they were so happy about man I, I think people don't like you to be happy Killjoy. Did you ever have somebody like that? Anyway. So as we go through this, again, I'm going to read a couple verses in each point, And then I'm going to say something like verses 5 through 10 is more instructions on that festival. So if you'd like to go home and study it a little deeper, you can. But I just, just maybe for exhortation for you and I, to give us rhyme and reason why we can be a people of, of, that can experience joy. You with me today, guys? Starting with verse 1, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Now speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them concerning the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be a holy convocation. These things are my feast. They, they belong to God. He says... Six days shalt thou work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It's the Sabbath, the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. It's a Sabbath for everybody. It's a weekly observance. God has called it a festival, but there are some modern scholars today that they say, no, it's just one of God's commands. 
if I, if I read them right and, and, and I pay close attention, it seems the legalist wants to keep it a law. And the guy that's saturated in mercy and grace, they want to keep it a feast, a festival. It's a weekly observant. It predates even the law of Moses. It wasn't something Moses came up with. It goes all the way back to Genesis. This idea that we're to take off a, a day. No, wait a minute. That they were to take off a day. This was a, this was a festival for the Jews. In fact, if you watch them today celebrate Sabbath in Israel, you'll notice that people get off of work early to prepare for it. There's certain elevators just for um, those who want to observe the Sabbath. In fact, I think it was Bill Pfeiffer and I, we were in Jerusalem and there was an elevator. Well, we didn't know there's a Gentile and a Jewish elevator. So I wanted to go on with all this Hasidic Jews and pick their brains, but... I get in there with them and I notice that all the lights on the buttons are pushed. They're all, and I'm thinking, you guys are stopping at every floor. Well, here it's a, a sabbatical elevator. It stops at every floor so they don't have to push a button that's breaking the Sabbath. I'm over there looking like a nut. I'm going, yo, Bill, what's up with all these things, you know? But they won't even push a button. They they had taken something that was so beautiful, this thought of God saying, "I really want you to take a day." That it wasn't just to have downtime. No, no. In 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 His commands, it was a time where the family was to be together. It was a time of reflection. That's why He says, "When you do it, I don't even want you to walk so many paces away. I want you just to stay close to home." And I remember there was a few days that I was with Joe over there and we, we had a chance to go to one of his friends on a Sabbath and we literally were sitting on a porch e- eating boiled eggs. I know that sounds kind of weird, but we were just eating boiled eggs and, and no one said much. We just, and the kids were there on the porch and, uh, the, you know, the host was talking about scriptures. It was such, I, mean, I felt so rested when I was done that day. Because I think it's a good day. But it was, a, it was a time of reflecting. It was a time where the families were to be together. Now, I have a, a buddy of mine. He's a Seventh-day Adventist guy. Um, they're very legalistic when it comes to this sabbatical law. And he was on my case one time about worshiping on a Sunday. And I said, listen, I think his, his name's Mark. I said, listen, Mark, how is it that you'll keep some of the Sabbath law and not all of it? And he was kind of taken back a little bit. And he goes, I'm not sure I know what you mean. I said, well, you're all bent on, you know, worshiping on this Saturday, you know, and, and if you work on, in fact, the, the hardliners will say if you worship on a Sunday, it's equivalent of taking the mark of the beast. Ouch. I said, well, I don't get it, buddy. I said, if you look at God's command when it comes to the sabbatical law, it doesn't say if you feel like it. It says you're not, you're to work six day, and brother, you take Saturday and Sunday off. So how can you say you'll obey one part of the law and not the other? Why aren't you working Sundays then? And this was his reaction. Um, All right, bro. See you later. There was no answer. You know, the legalists want to manipulate God's word because that's what makes them happy. There's something within their warpness, if that's a word, where like if I can conform you into what I think is true. Do you ever get someone that's real bent on that post-tribulist view and they'll argue till, till the cows come on? They'll argue and argue and argue that you're wrong being a pre-tribulist. Or maybe you're, a, you're really a Calvinistic kind of a person. Well, they'll sit there and argue when the Bible even says the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome. What are you even arguing about? All the legalists will do that. But God says these feasts, these festivals were to be a time of joy. Man gets his hands on it and twists it around and warps it up and it loses its joy. Amen, guys? And so men will dress up. Actually, some Orthodox Jews, ladies, you'll like this. Every Sabbath, wifey gets a present. Every Sabbath, the husband has to bring home a gift for his wife. Or flowers, at least. The reason for that is because it's one of those festivals where they would even use the term, it's a beautiful feast. 
It's a beautiful feast. Um, they took this sabbatical law, the Sabbath law. They have, um, they've, they've toured. Well, if you read the New Testament and you just read the New Testament as it relates to the Sabbath law, you would wonder why would I even want the Sabbath law? By the time. Um, the Talmud came around to help interpret the law. 24 chapters were de- just dedicated to the law of the Sabbath. 24. So, in other words, you'll see something like this. Uh, you can't put your dentures in on the Sabbath because it's bearing a burden. Apparently, they had wooden dentures in biblical days. You weren't allowed to comb your hair. It was cultivating. Honestly, you couldn't blow your nose. Now, I know that sounds gross. You couldn't do any kind of, can't push a button. You can't, they, by all the laws and the interpretations of the law, they took away what God wanted for them and that was joy. Took it away. Um, when Jesus, Matthew, or Mark 2 and Matthew 12, when Jesus was going through a grain field, if you remember, they were plick, or plucking the heads of the grain and they were chewing on it. Now, if you have ever done that, probably not, but if you ever do do that, those kernels, because they're uncooked, they, they become very, like gum. It's like chewing gum after a while. And it, and it does, it gives you nourishment. It sustains you for a little bit. Well, the Pharisees had a problem with them doing that on a Sabbath. I'd like to know how they even got to the, the grain field, but... Jesus said this in Mark chapter 2. Jesus said unto them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. That's a paraphrase. Sabbath wasn't there to meet the needs of the people. But it was not the people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. He said that the Son of Man is even the Lord of even the Sabbath. Well, let's move on. It says, for these are the feasts, verse 4, of the Lord, a holy convocation, which you shall proclaim in their season on the 14th day of the month, even at evening, at twilight, your translation might render it, is the Lord's Passover. Now we look at the Passover, verses 5 through 8, and the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are kind of linked together. Now, of course, the Passover... Um, um, is that picture of the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt. Remember the ten plagues, the last plague, the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. Many of you already know this. This is just as a reminder. But you remember what Moses told them to do. You're to take the blood of a lamb, you put it on the lentil and then on the two doorposts. And of course you can make a nice picture of a cross there, you know. But it isn't about a cross, a predictive thing. It's really about the blood. That when the death angel sees the blood upon the what? The door. Upon the house. Where does Jesus reside? Where is the door? Where does the blood applied? It's just glorious pictures. That should bring you joy. That you and I do not have to fear death. Not the first death and not even the second death. First death would be, you know, the, the, the death spirit. Second death, the physical death. We don't have to be afraid of death. Why? Because the blood has been applied, folks, and that brings me great joy. I don't fear death. I hope you don't fear it as well. They would roast the lamb, Passover. They would have this, later on, they would have this crazy meal called the Seder meal. How many of you guys have ever participated in? You have, right? No, don't don't raise your hand and keep your comments to yourself. But um, when you walked away from that, did you really feel jubilant? There's not one thing on that that you liked. Everything is like bland and and horse rat and and it's got to be done in such a way you're afraid to mess anything up. And you sit there almost like restricted. If you've never done it, don't touch the egg yet. It's not time. You know, don't mess up anything. And they get off of, well, this is a picture of everything Christ has done. And I get it. Maybe it is. But the the feast, the Passover meal wasn't something they sat down 
Isn't that seeing Jesus saying, Peter, no, the horseradish next. No, Peter, leave the matzah alone. Wasn't anything like that. Jesus even said at the last Passover, with great desire, have I desired to eat this with you. What they were doing is they had a roasted lamb and they had all these spices. They had this flat bread. They're tearing it apart, putting some spit on it, dunking it in all the spice. Yeah, they double dipped all day long. And you know what they thought of when they did this? Listen, listen, you know. Say, Richie and I, if we, we were doing this together, he took a piece of bread and he dipped it in. I'm taking in our minds, because we're Hebrew, what's given him life is given me life. What's sustaining him is sustaining me. What makes him one with his God is now making me one with my God. And it makes us one. And we're enjoying this time together. And there's a great festive uh, joy within our hearts. You see what the law does? Oh, you got to do it a certain way. You got to cook it a certain way. You got to, right away, the joy is gone. You got to take communion a certain way. You got to do it the first day of the week. And don't you dare move the chairs out of position. Traditions of man, the law just rips people off of joy, joy unspeakable, joy that's full of glory. Now, the Passover really shows two things. It shows that, well, it commemorates a past deliverance for them, and it all shows a predictive future for them. They're sitting there in that house. They're, 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 they're following what Moses had told them to do. It's commemorating, man, God brought us out of Egypt, and, and it's a predictive thing that he's bringing us into the promised land. Imagine being in the wilderness, knowing that the past is behind and there's a future of the promised land ahead. And even today, as we will take communion together, yeah, there is a, an element that commemorates the past. Maybe that's our B.C. days, what God has brought us out of, our Egypt. Or maybe it commemorates the cross, what he's done to take us out. But it also has a predictive factor to it. Because Paul would say to the church in Corinth that every time you do this, taking the bread and drinking of the cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he what? Till he comes. Now, just think of that. You're holding that. You're showing forth today, Jesus could come back any minute. Now, if that don't put a smile on your face, nothing will. Verse 6, as we look at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it says on the fifth... uh, Fifteenth day of the same month of the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat the unleavened bread. Now, remember... They had to leave Egypt in a hurry, right? So when God, Moses told them they had to cook bread for their journey, he says, make sure because we're going to have to go on a dime. Got to go real quick. So don't make any bread with leaven in it. You're going to cook that thing without any leaven. It's going to go into the oven. It's going to come out of the oven. You're going to wrap that baby up and you're going to take off for your journey. You have to get out of there quick. Later on, yeah. After the six days were over of this feast, there was a sense that now we are recuperating. We had to do this really quickly. There was an urgency behind it. But now we have a chance now to recuperate. And sometimes we go through that. Sometimes God says to you, there's a little leaven there. And he deals with us in such a way where the leaven is removed. But he'll say to to your heart and in the quietness of your heart, if you allow me, When we're done this, when we're done working, we're done the sanctification thing, there'll be a time for you to recuperate. But they had to leave in a hurry. The Passover began the first day. The next seven days were considered the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread to them also was a symbol of restoration, of building up, and also talked about a, a wickedness that was to be removed. You see what the law does, guys, when it comes to these feasts? It, 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 it causes them to remain still in that state 
where they're still in transition. They never come to this place where they're recuperating or where they're enjoying the Passover. They're always in transition. That's, that's the old way. There's nothing pure about it. There's no truth about it. There's nothing. That, that way of celebrating God where you're all in your mind, in your heart, you're always trying to move forward. You never come to... That it's just a law and it just bogs you down and takes your joy. But you know what it tells us in Corinthians chapter 5? Let us celebrate the festival, not by eating the old bread of wickedness. The bread, feast of unleavened bread, what made it wicked? Listen, the wickedness, uh, bread of wickedness and evil, but now eating the new bread, who is Christ, with purity and with truth. When you realize that Christ now is the bread that comes down from heaven, somehow in your heart you know the work is done. Somehow and you know in your heart, even if you go through a, t- a time period where you feel like God's sanctifying your life, you know, there's a time of recuperation, God's meeting you there, but there's, sa- there's satisfaction. There's somehow there's purity in this process and there's truth in this process. And let me tell you something, folks. Stay in the error of religious celebration. You'll stay in wickedness and evil, but you take of the bread of life and celebrate truth. Truth will set you free. You with me, guys? The next one, verses 9 through 14, speaks of the festival of first fruits. Look at verse 9. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel. Say to them, When you come into the land in which I give unto you, and you shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the unto the priest and again 11 through the remainder of that feast is just more instructions on how to do that that they are to when it came to the burnt offering they were use a one-year-old lamb in verse 12 in verse 13 they were to present a grain offering that would be fine flour that's moistened with olive oil um, there's to present a special gift in verse 13 and then in 14 um, that do not eat any of the bread Roasted until you make the offering. So they had to make the offerings first. But let's just look at the, the festival, the, the, the feast of first fruits. Um, it's the beginning of barley harvest. It's, it's a time where the, the farmers are out in their field. It's early spring. And they know what they're doing with this festival. They're, they're going to go out there and they're going to get a certain amount of the first, the, the first in gathering. And they bring it to the temple, and then it's in a basket of some sort, and they're going to do a wave offering with this thing, the priest. Now, remember, we talked about that several weeks ago. The wave offering was like this. The heave offering was like this. And again, I don't look for symbolisms in the Bible. But again, like the blood on the, on the lentil and the doorpost and the blood drain, it does look like a cross. Well, the heave offering would be something like this, and then the wave offering would be something like this. And, and again, it's the high priest doing it. Could it be a picture of Christ, our high priest? The message of the cross could be. But what I see here is um, it's a, a representation of something. Yeah, see, and I saw this in Afghanistan. It was a kibbutz on the Sea of Galilee. I was there one day when they when this festival was beginning, and I didn't know what was going on. Uh, but as I wa- was watching this thing, I noticed that there was a group of people coming into an area, and they had the same thing where they were waving this grain. Now, this is modern time. They wouldn't have done it there in biblical days. It would have done, been done in the temple. But there's a guy in the middle, and he's waving it up and down. He's doing, and he's saying things in Hebrew. And then, then all of a sudden, they start going into a dance again. And, and everything just became really exciting. I'm watching the women. They're, again, they're making this certain kind of sound. They're throwing candy to the kids. And so I'm talking to a guy that's there, and I'm going, what is this all about? And he goes, oh, it's the, it, it, it's the festival of the first ingathering. And he goes, what this represents is they know something else is coming in. They say, this is just the beginning of something greater coming. And I, I was thinking about that, and I'm thinking, if, if that brings them joy, you know, I think of a scripture verse in Corinthians, 5, or 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read it to you. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. He is the first of the great harvest 
of all who had died. In other words, he is that first ripe in gathering. It represents his resurrection. What his resurrection as the first in gathering represented is more is following. Well, if more is following, who's following? It's us. He was the first in gathering. He was the first resurrection. And so again, going back to Thessalonians, and I'll read that in a second, but those that are dead in Christ will be, will be risen and those that are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and will meet the Lord in the air and be with him forevermore. That, that last resurrection. I don't know about you, man, but that, that just stirs my heart. Can you imagine if the rapture were to happen, right? Even before, even before I'm finishing, finish this lesson. I, if there's no excitement in your heart about that, something's not balanced, something's wrong. And it could be that the enemy, like me for years, has came and he has stolen your joy. Maybe he's replaced, instead of joy, you have fear now. And you're actually afraid of even thinking about a rapture. Thinking about death. There's no fear in death. None. I'm not saying we don't mourn. No, we went through something just recently where many of us were mourning over a death. But deep down inside our hearts, we know to be absent from the bodies, to be in the presence of the Lord. And soon and very soon, we're going to see a king. And with the dead in Christ will be risen to me. And we're going to follow right behind. And we're meeting the Lord, getting ushered into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then to enter into the millennial reign of Christ. Come on, church. Don't stay in the basement digging a hole. Don't be afraid of that. That should bring you great excitement. Now, look, I'm not wishing for it. I'm not afraid to die. The way, the way it happens, I might be a little alarm, alarmed about I. I saw a bear eating a guy the other day and he got to the vital organs a little later so the thing was eating him alive. I don't want to die like that. I would have stuck my head in his mouth. Jeez. Sorry. Something's got to loosen you guys up. Let's go right into verse 15. It talks about the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is, it means 50. You shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you were brought the sheaf of wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the Sabbath, or seven Sabbaths, shall ye, not, shall ye number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Now, again, there are people, scholars, well-known, that are really of mixed opinions about this whole Feast of Pentecost. You and I, we love the Feast of Pentecost on the day of Pentecost, you know, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we can make so many sermons out of just this one verse or idea. Um, we know on this particular day, at least this is what Jewish traditions teach, and that is that the day, the, on this day, Moses received the Ten Commandments, the law of God. During this day, the Shabuah, the, um, there's a discussion of a Torah, and there was a 24-hour vi vigilance. In other words, they wouldn't sleep for 24 hours. But, but notice verse 17. It says, you shall bring out of your habitation two wave um, loaves of uh, two-tenth deals. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked. Notice what it says there, baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. Now, wait a minute. If you're a student of Scripture, right when you see leaven, you do tap the brakes a bit, don't you? Unleavened bread kind of it represents, it symbolizes the Jewish nation. The 12 loaves of bread in, uh, in, the, te in the temple, their tabernacle, was a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the whole thing about unleavened sin and all that and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to scour through the whole house and make sure there was no leaven in there. And um, God, again, pressing a point there about sin. But we come to this, the day of Pentecost, and he says, now I want you to present two loaves that now has leaven in it. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, what does this mean? 
some some reputable, well-known scholars um, that feel like this represents the church age. Um, There's a gap between all the other festivals. There's a period of time where nothing else is happening. There's not another festival. There's a good bit of time there. Nothing takes place. You know, there's no festivals. There's nothing like that. There's no law. There's nothing. And and you think if, if this does represent the church age... You know, that dispensation, we are dispensationalists, meaning that God works in blocks of time. At this time period, called the church age, is where man experienced this joy through God's grace and his mercy and not through a law. See, they were told how to do the Sabbath. They were told how to do the the, the Feast of Pentecost. They They were given specific instructions on how to do it. And yes, they were to be jubilant and festive and all that. But when we come into the Old Testament or New Testament, we don't see any of it. In fact, Paul says in Romans that a man ought not to esteem one day above another. But if he's going to, let him be fully persuaded in his own mind. Gentiles want to celebrate on a Saturday or a Sunday. The Jews want to celebrate on it. Paul says, you know, just make sure you have a conviction about it. There's no law. And it does make a lot of sense what Paul says in Galatians, that there's neither Jew, Gentiles, slave, free, male, uh, for we're all one in Christ. He tells us in the book of Ephesians, God has taken down this wall, this partition between Jews and Greeks and barbarians, Scythians, that, that everybody's now is on the same playing field. There's no more divisions. And that's during the church age. And when we start looking at the f- festival of the trumpets, things start to change a little bit. It ushers in something else. And that trump, the church is taken up and... And God starts to deal with the nation again. And it'll be during that time period where they will look on him and whom they have pierced. Not us. We're in heaven. He's talking about him in gathering in the Jews again. Establishing a covenant with them again. So it could be. It could be. and It could be that that festival is... It's just speaking of the church age. Not that God has forsaken the Jewish nation. Don't ever buy into that lie. That's that, that reform theology stuff that God's done with Israel and that we are spiritual Israel. And No, 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 kids, don't. No, that is so wrong. Paul the apostle, he would, tell, he would say in Romans 11, he says, I ask then, as God rejected his people, that the, um, the nation of Israel, he says, of course not. He goes, I myself, I am a, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, that's ridiculous. Never think that God's done with the nation. That is God's people, chosen people. That little strip of ground that's a little larger than New Jersey is God's holy ground. That little city isn't the city of the Jews. It's the city of God. You read about it. And there's coming a day after that trump is blown where the blood will flow to the horse's bridle and Christ goes through the eastern gate once again. He will establish his throne in Jerusalem. I don't care if our capital is in Jerusalem. The only one I want to see in Jerusalem is our Lord and Savior, the Prince of Peace. Amen, guys? If the ushers will get ready to... Go ahead and start distributing the, the elements. We're not done yet, guys. Hang in here with me. It tells us in verse 23 and 24 and 25, Speak unto the children of Israel, say, saying, In the seventh month, the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial blowing the trumpets, a holy convocation. And you shall do no ordinary work is the idea there, but you shall offer an uh, offering made by fire. And again, the verses between 25 are going down. It's just more of a instruction for them. But the Feast of Trumpets. And this is a difficult study, and, and I'll tell you why. And we could take weeks studying about the trumpets. What we're told, even in Numbers chapter 10, that there's two silver trumpets that will blow. And, um, and, and it really talks about a, a trumpet to, to blow. And you can start passing it out, Chris, and I'll just start passing out the elements. Um, it's to, to remind them that something is, is coming up. Something's going to happen. Um, 
We read Daniel chapter 9, where it talks about those 70 weeks of Daniel, the, the seven heptads, uh, speaking again that when, when, when the Messiah is cut off, when he dies for us, there's going to be another seven-week period that's going to take place. And it deals with a block of time. And the celebration of the trumpets, again, just so it's applicable to us, the, the trumpets only to be a reminder that the, one day you and I, now I, I don't know how this is going to work, but we're going to hear a trumpet. That's what the Bible tells us. Let me read this to you. For the Lord himself will come down, come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God. First, believers that have died will rise from their graves. I'm paraphrasing. Then together with them, the ones who are alive and remain on the face of the earth, we will be caught up, harpazoed, raptured, and we are to be, meet the Lord in the air. And then in verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, now listen, and this is where I think the trump comes into play. He says, encourage one another with these words. So I can encourage you today. That if there is just a nanosecond and you hear a trumpet, what's happening is there's a resurrection happening. First, the ones who have died, receiving their glorified body. And you and I, now listen, kids, you and I, in a nanosecond, will be caught up to meet the Lord. We are metamorphosed from the inside out, turned into something glorious. First Corinthians says that which is mortal will be. Put on immortality. That which is corrupt will put on incorruption. We are changed in the twinkling of an eye. So guys, if you hear that trumpet, it's a reminder that something glorious is going to happen. And I think just that truth of itself, we can be very excited about it. The last one I want to deal with, well, is the Day of Atonement, verses 26 through 29. Remember, we're talking about a Sabbath, a day of rest. Passover is redemption. Unleavened bread, it talks about recuperating. The first fruits, a representation of something greater is going to happen. A Passover, we're talking about, you know, that church age and then the trumpet. And now what we have before us is the day of atonement. And the word next to that, you can put repentance. Now listen, guys. We've studied this, so I'm not going to elaborate on it too deeply. The Day of Atonement, uh, several, several things happened there. There was, you know, uh, the offering of a, of a, of a, a burn offering. Um, there was seven days they had to present a special gift. On the seventh day, it was to be another gift. And it had to be voluntarily uh, from their heart. And, and, and it was all about this, uh, this leading up to a point. Now, this is one of those festivals that when you began it, it was very somber. It was very quiet. Um, you're dealing with your sin. Now, listen to me. Whenever we're dealing with our sin, it's not a joyous time. Agreed? Would we agree with that? God convicts you of a shortcoming. It does kind of bum us out. That's why I say, and if that, say that if it ever happens, you, you first, Johnny, you get it to the cross. The blood of Christ cleanses us. But something happens at the cross, doesn't it? When you know you're forgiven. See, what happened during this day? Is after all the sacrifices, towards the end of that day, someone would bring in two goats into the courtyard. And everyone that was, could see inside this little courtyard would know this is what's happening. These two goats represented something. Number one, one had to be innocent. The other would have to bear the sins of all of Israel. The high priest then would come over and in a symbolic gesture put his hands upon that one goat. And symbolically he's transferring all the sins of Israel that all went on during that year transferred onto that goat. The other goat, the priest would come up behind it, lean its back against its hindquarters, take a knife, slit its throat. And blood would drain into a basin. The basin then would go into the anoint the, the, the altar of judgment, then um, the other furnishings, and then the, going back to the other goat, we'll call him the scapegoat. The high priest then would take him to the eastern gate, let him go. And now the way the hills are and the ravines are in Israel, even today, you close your eyes because now there's buildings there and there's all kinds of things there. But you can see this goat. They would send it off in a direction. And on every hill, there was a station, an outlook station. 
And if that man on that station still saw the, the goat that represented carrying our sins, they would convey the message back, sin is still here. I can still see the sins of Israel. Then it would go through another valley, and then the second outlook, I can still see it. And it would go and go and go until finally that goat is out of sight. And then the word would be transferred back to the, to the tabernacle. Our sins are to be seen no more, at least for a year. You know who our Passover lamb is, yeah? But do you know who our scapegoat is? Arch sins transferred to Jesus on the cross. Now look, I don't know everybody's story, but some of us have some hideous backgrounds. Well, just think of something you read, maybe some of this, maybe some wicked thing, somebody. Can you imagine Hitler's sin being transferred to Christ? Can you imagine all the sins of ISIS, all those men who have tortured and mutilated, mutilated all those all their sins transferred to Christ? Did you know every sin, past, present, and future, somehow spiritually? And literally was nailed to, cross, nailed to Christ on the cross. Everyone. Those sins were judged. Christ was judged on our behalf. But for you and I who've received that gift of salvation, you know what we hear? I see sin no more. In fact, the Bible tells us that He's taken our sin. And he has cast them as far as the east is from the west. That, in other words, never to be remembered again. God says, I've taken your sin and I've cast them into the depths of the sea, never to be dredged up again. Now, folks, let me tell you something. That brings me great joy. I wonder if we can take communion and actually be joyful about taking it. Now, I weep every time I take communion because it's my dad who's died. It's my Savior who allowed his back to be shred. Every drop of blood that flowed down his, his legs that day. All the blood that coagulated in his system was for payment. It was payment. It was my sin. And like the Day of Atonement, it starts off very somber. But then my sin is carried away. And I get stoked. I get so happy. Because I don't have to do this every year. I get to keep my Father. He's eternal. I'm very grateful. Are you? Or has communion become some, like a ritual now? I came from a denomination. You had it at the same day, at the end of the month, same message, and the same woman prophesied the same way. And I just couldn't wait, wait to go across the street at Bo Betts and get my eggs in hand. And then one day, God really showed me grace. And I became so excited. So we're going to take this together. But we're going to sing a song. And I want you to make this song your prayer. And if you are dealing with Eeyoreism, I want you to ask God to change you. Take your mourning and turn it to joy. I'm talking about joy, not happiness. If you just look at life as some kind of some kind of bad deal. <laughs> I want God to change your attitude. We get a chance to live this life to be missionaries for Christ. We get to live this life, this life to let our light shine before men and be salt of the earth. Let's sing this song. I get a prayer, prayerful song.
Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown us today, Lord, that you are a God that loves to be praised and adored. In fact, you even said that our sacrifices of praise is actually an aroma to you, an aroma of rest. There's so many things, Lord, that as we go through your word that should bring us great joy. You went through the pain so we wouldn't have to. You shed your blood because we wouldn't have to. You were the perfect Lamb of God. You demonstrated that all the way back when the Israelites were released from Egypt. And you have brought us into this relationship with you that now we hold these elements, this cracker that represents your broken body and this small cup that represents your shed blood for the remission of sin. We, we get to do this, Lord, and it is somewhat sobering, God, and who can look at the cross, Lord, without feeling some kind of pain? knowing that you suffered, bled, and died for, for us, that we could go from death to life. And the only thing you said at that feast, the command that you gave that every time we do this, that we're to do this in remembrance of you. So today, Father, we remember the cross. We remember your your broken body on the cross, and we remember the shed blood for the remission of sin, the payment. It was paid in full. And we pray, Father, as we partake of this, Lord, if there's anyone here that just needs you, Lord, they need that assurity, they need the guarantee, God, that you reside in their hearts. All they have to do is open their hearts and receive you. They can take this with great joy. If there's anyone here, Father, that just needs your healing touch. Father, that some, something in their bodies is it's just wrong. Would you please, God, as you spoke to blind Bartimaeus, just speak a word of healing to them. And if there's anyone here that's downcast, there's something emotionally going on, 
Lord, that as they're taking this, great joy would flood their hearts, their soul. So, Lord, as you stood and you blessed it, we stand here today, Father, and ask for your blessing upon this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Let's eat and drink together.